This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Let's go a level deeper, as they say, into Dr. Fauci's testimony, but also get a real sense of where we are. We've got one of our go-to docs back with us, Dr. Andy Pekash. He is professor of molecular microbiology and immunology. I practice saying that at night just so I get it right. Johns Hopkins University, Bloomberg School of Public Health. As you can tell by the name, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, it's supported by Mike Bloomberg, the founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Dr. Pekash, great to have you back with us. Thanks for having me on. All right. So let's dive right into the Fauci testimony, because all eyes, obviously, as we've been saying, have been on Washington to the trained eye of which you have to uh, what did you see and hear from the doctor? Uh, you know, these are the things that everybody should be really aware of. Um, when we pull back public health interventions, we expect to see some cases come up. If we pull them back too soon, the magnitude of the cases, the number of cases will be higher. Um, If we're not prepared to do testing and really good contact tracing to identify the the people who become in contact with infected people, we run the risk of having a a rather large second bounce back wave. Um, So it's really going to be important for us to time it right and be prepared to pull back these public health entrants so we can control the virus at a different level. Right. So I don't want to get political. That is certainly not my aim here. But I do wonder, coming off a press conference yesterday that was predominantly from the president and his team about testing and saying we have enough tests out there and everything that we need, tell me about that specific event and if we do indeed are doing the right kind of testing and that we are doing enough testing, especially, I think, 24 hours or was it this morning where Wuhan is talking about testing everybody in their city. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and it really becomes a question of capacity. Um, you know, we're, cap- we're able to test in most parts of the country. And again, this can be different in different localities, right? Um, here in Maryland, we're doing a good job of testing the symptomatic individuals. Um, the turnaround time on tests are fairly good. Um, but what we'd like to be is a, a level above that. We want to be able to turn around tests really fast, within a day. You want to be able to test almost immediately people who have come in contact with the people who are sick so that you can catch them before they really start showing symptoms and tell them to quarantine a little bit earlier. So we need more testing. We need more coordination. We need more contact tracing to be able to deal with um, the situation when we relieve our public health interventions. You know, Dr. Pekash, I saw a poll this morning that was talking about contact tracing specifically, and people's willingness to participate was largely based on, their enthusiasm for it was largely based on who's doing the administering. What's the right method to go about doing that in your estimation? So, you know, the the best method is to have trained individuals who can um, 
capture this information, contact you, and give you the correct information in terms of what needs to be done. Um, there are people at state public health and county public health departments um, who are doing this. Um, we here at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health have had a number of professors who have started courses to try to educate people in terms of how to do that, to increase the number of people that are capable of doing good social contact tracing. So there are some things that you need to know and uh, be able to train to be do this all quite possible, um, but you need to invest right now to increase those numbers of individuals, again, so you're ready when you pull back public health interventions. So when Health and Human Services official Admiral Britt Grar says that states and territories aim to do 12.9 million tests over the next four weeks and represents more than about 9.4 million tests that the U.S. has done to date, is that a lot in a nation of more than 300 million people? Uh, so again, you have to look at it at the local level. Where okay. there's outbreaks... Um, that's where you have to be looking at the testing because having tests in places where there aren't any outbreaks right now or low numbers of cases maybe isn't the best way of utilizing those tests. So we need to do more. We need to be able to be testing individuals um, um, outside of just the CDC recommendations for symptomatic individuals to really jump ahead of this epidemic and be able to tamp it down even greater. So as you look across the the world, what countries are good examples of where we should be headed and what countries are cautionary tales, Dr. Pekash? Well, you can look at a lot of the countries in Southeast Asia who were um, on the front lines during those first few weeks of the um, of, of the pandemic. Um, countries like Singapore, countries like um, uh, Japan, um, Hong Kong. Um, they have all been able to stay ahead. Oh, and, and, I, I, and Taiwan is probably the, right. even the best example of that, right? Um, you can get ahead of the, the epidemic with massive amounts of testing and good interventions. And if you can muster those resources and, and, and put them uh, to use effectively, then uh, you can it's clear that you can keep this epidemic uh, down to manageable levels. All right, Charlie, thank you so much. And, of course, Charlie talking to some of our great sources over at Johns Hopkins about how this virus, uh, some of the symptoms and how it has evolved. We want to continue our conversation with someone else from Johns Hopkins, Andy Pekosh, still with us, Professor of Molecular Microbiology and Immunology at Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health on the phone from Baltimore. So I have to ask you, Dr. Pekosh, about a vaccine. Anthony Fauci saying, don't expect really anything by fall. He says more likely within a year to 18 months. I, we've talked with you about this before. I mean, we need to be realistic. That's the time frame? You know, yes, I think that is a realistic time frame. Uh, there's a chance things could go faster. There's a chance things could go slower. So I think um, Dr. Fauci brings up a good realistic time frame. I think you know, this is all. Uh, this is this is a disease that's about all the little steps. The last two weeks have, have have shown that a couple of vaccine candidates have made it out of that first phase of testing, which is the safety phase, and are now moving into the larger scale of testing, which is to see if they actually are inducing immune responses in a large segment of the population. So we're seeing some good signs. Um, if these vaccines didn't pass the safety stage, then of course we'd be in, we'd be worried a little bit more. So things are progressing. 
um, everybody is trying to maximize uh, the amount of time, or minim- I should say minimize right. the amount of time that um, is going through this by sort of maximizing overlap wherever it's possible. So everybody's moving as fast as they can, but we have to be sure about safety and we have to be sure about efficacy uh, before we even start thinking about uh, vaccination uh, strategies. And so, uh, Dr. Pekash, help us understand once we have a vaccine, what's the smart way to sort of get it to the world? Yeah, so there'll be a lot of discussions about this. We'll be bringing in bioethicists uh, to discuss this, as well as medical doctors, as well as, uh, as, well as modelers and other scientists that can help figure out um, what populations to immunize. Um, clearly, we want to immunize and protect the most vulnerable populations. So in the case of COVID-19, that certainly does seem to be the elderly. Um, but we also want to uh, immunize those people um, who are caring for them, so healthcare workers, frontline first responders. Um, and if the data shows us that particular sections of the population might be responsible for a lot of spread, well, it might be really useful to target those po- sections of the populations to try to, again, cut these trains of transmission. I do wonder, too, you know, it feels like over the last few decades, we have seen certainly an increase in autoimmune illnesses uh, and these viruses that are getting maybe tougher and tougher. Is this our new world order? And are we going to have similar viruses like COVID-19 that are going to kind of paralyze our society in the future? Uh, You know, uh, there's so much to deal with with this current one that it's hard to think forward. But... um, Yes, you know, we, sh- we have to be constantly aware that um, we are coming in contact with more and more viruses that are present in more and more animal reservoirs out there. And COVID-19 is just a great example of the fact that some of those viruses are actually able to make the jump into humans um, with um, relative ease. You know, the vast majority jumping to humans is a problem, and they don't do that successfully. But... Um, in 2009, we had swine influenza become a pandemic, and now in 2019, we had COVID-19. And, you know, as population grows, as we come in contact with more and more unique animal reservoirs, uh, we should expect that these things are going to be a constant threat going forward. All right. Well, we really appreciate it. As always, Dr. Andy Pekash is Professor of Molecular Microbiology and Immunology at the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. That school, of course, supported by Mike Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. He joined us on the phone from Baltimore. A couple headlines. We want to bring you New Jersey, home state of Carol Masser. Uh, the fewest new virus cases in more than six weeks. Uh, this is a trend, a good trend that we are mm-hmm. starting to see in New York City, in the tri-state area. Right. Uh, a testament to some pretty aggressive uh, measures that the governors uh, in this region have made, Carol. Meanwhile, we did hear also from Charlie about the New York COVID-19 cases rising four-tenths of a percent versus the previous seven-day average. That was double that, eight-tenths right. of a percent. So, But again, these trend lines have to be going for, I believe, a decline of two weeks, right, before you can really think right. about reopening. And that's that's a key metric. Another important thing on a lighter note, Room Raider, Anthony Fauci, 10 out of 10. <laughs> Of course, of course, of course, he's a hero of 2020. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly.
on Bloomberg Radio. This is one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg. It's about if landlords get wiped out, Wall Street wins and not renters. It is in the magazine. It's on newsstands later in the week, online and on the Bloomberg. Prashant Gopal is U.S. real estate reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone from Massachusetts, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber, on the phone from Brooklyn. And, you know, Joel, like so many stories in Businessweek, you guys do talk. There's always, it seems, winners and losers. That's right. Um, and this one, I think, is um, somewhat somewhat unexpected as um, as this pandemic has sort of transpired. And obviously, um, the hits to the job market have impact on people's abilities to pay their rent and mortgages. And there's been, you know, a modest amount of relief on that front, at least in, it's in progress. But the the maybe an unexpected victim is the the landlords, especially small landlords. Uh, Prashant, what did you find as you kind of dug into the story? Yeah, I mean, like, they're, you know, landlords are often not the most popular group out there, but, you know, and, and maybe that's one of the reasons why they're not really getting help, whereas a lot of other people are. Um, you see that, you know, when people don't pay rent, um, uh, a lot of these small landlords um, don't have uh, the resources necessarily to kind of withstand that hit. If you have, you know, let's say five units and three of them are not paying, that's a big percentage of your portfolio. Well, and and Prashant, this story goes to something that you and the team have done such an amazing job over the past few years of documenting. And it goes back to, you know, a lot that the magazine has done here about who the landlords really are, especially the big landlords are uh, in the country. And a lot of them are from Wall Street. Yeah, you know, but it's interesting. Actually, if you look at all the the, the properties in the all the actually if you look at the all the properties in the U.S. Um, about you know seventy seven percent of those properties are actually owned by individuals or small landlords. Yeah. Um, if you look at the individual units, right, then it's more it's over fifty still. Interesting. Um, so so it, a lot of the landlords out there are actually um, mom and pops, and um, you know so we think of you know these very wealthy people. Uh, or com- uh, companies, right, with deep pockets that can withstand this kind of shock. But the mm-hmm. truth is, they're actually just your neighbors, you know, the local yeah. dentist or, you know, or somebody with less money than that. So, Prashant, what is the scuttle on Wall Street? Uh, is there, uh, is this viewed as an opportunity? Is Wall Street going to sweep in here, much like in the financial crisis, and just walk out holding all kinds of new real estate? Or, or is it a little bit more gray than that? Well, so, okay, let's take a step back. Cause what, what, what's happening right now is that we have, in, in many states, there are eviction bans in place. So these small landlords in general um, aren't able to evict tenants who aren't paying. Um, and that's for good reason, right? We don't want people out in the streets during a health crisis. But the, the effect of that is that they are going now month after month without income coming in. And they can't really, they don't have any tools to kind of convince people to pay. And, uh, and many of them still have mortgages and they have to pay property taxes. There's no forbearance on property taxes. So eventually, uh, you know, they're going to get in trouble. They're going to have to sell probably at distressed prices. And guess who has the money to buy those properties? Um, it's, it's likely going to be uh, Wall Street in some form, private equity firms, um, that's what happened last time. They came in and they, they, they bought up 
single family homes uh, at very low prices at pennies on the dollar and um, turn them into rentals. And this time they may just be buying rentals. I have to say, I mean, just some of the anecdotes and the people that you talk to in this story just, you know, remind us, as you say, the backbone of so many of these properties, it's a lot of small businesses. Um, and it's just such a contrast to homeowners being given a break through, you know, the Washington programs, but renters are not. What what are ch- trade associations and, you know, groups of landlords, you know, what are they lobbying for? What are they likely to get maybe in some kind of stimulus or, you know, help from the government, federal government? It's not clear they're going to get anything, to be honest, but right, there are some bills floating out there. Um, you know, there's, there's a, the, uh, um, some of the trade associations are kind of getting behind an idea uh, for like a hundred billion dollars, um, that would go to to landlords directly, and um, and and that would pay for missing rent um, that you know rent that they're not collecting. Um, but you know at that at, at this point, there's no um, you know I don't think they're really behind any particular bill. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, it's a really terrific story. Uh, one of the most read on the Bloomberg. It's in the magazine uh, coming out this week, but you can read it now on Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal, Carol. I love how he writes the next housing crisis is here, and this time it's about rentals. I mean, you know, it's always the devils in the details. When you look at things from, you know, 10,000 miles up, you don't always catch the nuances to a situation. And I feel like this is one of those stories. It's a typical, you know, great reporting by Prashan and his team and Business Week, where you dig down into it, and yeah. you're like, "Oh, okay, that's what's really going on," and, and that's, that's who ultimately owns this or yes. who doesn't, and and these and are the implications and sort of playing it out. Uh, really nice stuff. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Time for Business Week Economics. And today we're talking with Harvard University economist professor uh, Robert Barrow. And he looks back to history for some guidance on the lifting of restrictions put in place by COVID-19. It's something that Jason, Business Week economics editor Peter Coy, he wrote about uh, in the magazine. We talked about it with Peter. It's based on Professor Barrow's work. And lucky for us, Professor Barrow joins us on the phone from Maine. Welcome to Bloomberg uh, Business Week. Thanks. Good to be on. So tell us a little bit about your work, because the headline on Peter's story was a lesson from the Spanish flu, don't end restrictions too soon. And as you know, it feels like there's so much in terms of conversations, debate about social distancing and how long we need to stay in isolation and shut down. Tell us a little bit about what we learned from the Spanish flu and how that might help us today. Well, first, I think it is the historical example that's most relevant for today in terms of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, Of course, it was a very serious event, 1918 to 20, worldwide, uh, including the United States. Uh, But the work you were specifically talking about is on these so-called non-pharmaceutical public health interventions. And there's information about that across uh, 43 U.S. cities in 1918-1919. You can see what was the impact of things like school closings and prohibitions on public gatherings and quarantine uh, isolation measures. And you can see the effect of that on uh, the flu death rates and on flattening the curve uh, among these uh, large U.S. cities. Um, The basic finding is that these measures succeeded clearly in flattening the curve. 
So the, the relative peak in the death rate was uh, pretty dramatically reduced when there were more of these interventions put in place. Um, but the disappointing part is that it didn't actually end up ultimately reducing the uh, total death rates in this 1918-1919 period. And I think that's probably because the measures were not kept in place long enough. They were typically only in place about uh, four to five weeks. And uh, a likely inference is that it had to be more like 10 to 12 weeks uh, to be really effective on the overall deaths. And that's the kind of debate we're having currently in the U.S., I would say. Absolutely. I mean, what you are speaking to, Professor Barrow, is exactly, we just heard uh, a tidbit of this from our news guy, Charlie Pellet, that, you know, that Dr. Fauci was saying earlier this morning to lawmakers on Capitol Hill, is this just a question? You are an economist after all. Is this just a question of people being so worried about the economy that they're just, they're moving too fast? You know, it's reasonable to be worried. I mean, yeah. there's a major economic downturn. It's going to be uh, costly. Uh, the key thing there is uh, not so much how deep is the contraction, but how long is it going to last? Are we going to have a pretty rapid rebound? And I think there's a good chance of that if we can get past the uh, uh, disease uh, issue. Um, well, well, what's interesting it's reasonable is, for people to be worrying about this. Well, absolutely. And what's interesting, too, is we keep talking about the economic cost of certainly the stimulus packages or the relief packages that are being done and also the cost to the economy. But you also have done work on the value of a single life, right? And what that person does in terms of working and economic input. I mean, I hate to put it in such kind of black and white terms, but right, we all have a value to society and certainly to our economy. And if we're not alive to contribute, that's going to have an impact too. Well, there's a pretty big literature on this, not one to which I've contributed, but which I've read uh, with a good deal of uh, interest. So it's really about how much would people be willing to pay ex ante in order to reduce the uh, probability of dying, in order to, for example, make your job safer or riskier, or to put it another way, how much extra do you have to be paid in terms of wages to take a job that's a little riskier in terms of the risk to, uh, of life and death? And people have done a lot of work backing out from that. What's the implicit uh, so-called statistical value of a life? And a typical estimate for a rich country like the United States is that it's a pretty high number. It's about $10 million. That's a sort of current estimate. Of course, there's a range that's used. Even the Environmental Protection Agency uses a number which is in that uh, ballpark. Um, so I've tried to think about trading off the economic costs, for example, of the interventions we've been putting in place and you know, what's the loss there in GDP, uh, versus what's the gain, if you have some idea how many lives do you save and how do you value those. And when I put that together as a rough calculation, I get that even though the economic cost is large, uh, it looks like it's worth it and it's worth keeping these marriages in place for, for longer, for another four, six weeks, something like that probably. Uh, I think that's conti uh, consistent with what Dr. Fauci has been arguing. Right. That's exactly right. And and I do wonder in the minute or so we have left, I mean, what did you see in terms of the variance as you did this study across cities? Were there other elements other than the shutdown that, that played in here? Well, you see a big uh, variation in cities, but uh, there was a pattern in the U.S. because this big 
wave of the uh, great influenza pandemic started actually in Boston mm-hmm. um, uh, in September 1918, and then it gradually spread. And then the countries that were further away, particularly going toward the West Coast, had more time to prepare. They right. knew mm-hmm. it was coming. And they were more likely to put in these measures to try to stem the uh, tide of the epidemic, and, and they did that. Uh, and it definitely flattened the curve, but uh, again, the disappointing part is it seemed to be more postponing the deaths than it was completely avoiding yeah. them. Yeah. Um, well, it, it's a really, really interesting uh, piece of work. And to understand it further, uh, do check out Peter Coy's story uh, in Bloomberg Business Week. Professor Robert Barrow, he's an economist and a professor at Harvard University, he joins us on the phone from Maine. Uh, really thoughtful. And look, he is exactly right that this is the epidemic that so many people are going back to yes. to take some lessons and uh, a very timely conversation given what we heard uh, from Dr. Fauci earlier today in Washington. And may not be the exact same, but it does give us so much information. It was interesting. I saw a piece, too, where they were you know, showing people back then wearing masks and yep. like going through so many of the things that we're going through. And so it really is the best historical example. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Mann. And Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. A new segment, a new feature uh, to some extent in Bloomberg Business Week. You know, they've always been focused uh, to some extent on small business, but surviving in the world of small business, it is even more challenging right now, Carol, to say the least. We are so happy to have our next guest. We haven't talked to her in so long, especially in this pandemic world where we're out of the office. Demetra Kassanides is an editor at Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from New York City. Demetra, great to have you back with us. Thanks, guys. It's great to be with you. It's great to hear your voice. So tell us about this Small Business Survival Guide. Well, um, we launched it, uh, I would say, a little over a month ago at this point, maybe close to two months ago. I mean, it was very clear, as we all know, and we hear these stories, that small businesses were going to be really hit hard by what was going on with the shutdown and the lockdown. They are a huge, huge driver of our economy. They employ so many millions of people across the U.S. When you consider a business that's as small as a one-person business, a sole proprietorship, you know, up to even a few hundred people. And so it was clear that this was going to be a situation where beyond covering some of the stories of the actual businesses, we could provide a service and really get into a lot of sort of um, how-tos, how to navigate the federal relief programs, where else can people turn to for help. We want to really be a resource for these small businesses and the owners and the people who lead them to find the information they need to to do the best they can to survive under very, very challenging circumstances. Yeah, and circumstances where we really don't have the playbook, and you guys are certainly setting it out for everyone. So let's talk about the theme um, or one of the themes that you've tackled, and that is small businesses accessing money that they need, and it has to do with lenders and loans. So tell us a little bit about the coverage uh, along that line. Yes. And again, you know, we're, we're seeing that because, of course, we've all heard the stories about the challenges in accessing the government's PPP loans and some of the other financing options. You know, what we've looked at most recently, for example, today was to really consider that not all lenders are the same. And as a small business, you know, your, your inclination might be to simply go to the bank that you know, and maybe the bank that you're banking with personally is a bigger bank. But you need to really be very creative and versatile in the ways that you're going to access capital. Capital is the name of the game right now. 
no matter what you're doing, you need to access it. So, you know, we've talked to various experts about how small businesses need to identify their priorities, um, figure out exactly what they need money for, be guided by that in terms of where they're going to go seeking out lenders. Uh, is it a CFDI, a community finance development uh, organization? Is it a smaller community bank? a mid-sized bank, you know, the Chase Manhattans and the city banks of the world are very responsive to certain types of businesses, but they're not the right kind of bank for all of these businesses. So that is one area that we've spent quite a bit of time on and that there's been a lot of coverage out there. Um, today we published a tip sheet for how to really approach this and think about how do I access that capital? How do I not get discouraged by the first loan application that was rejected? I need to find a bank where I can go and put in a second application, and I maybe need to work with a different kind of institution, a credit union, or what have you. Well, and that discouragement, I mean, it is really rampant at this point, Demetra, because, you know, businesses, and, and you have it right there uh, in the title of this series, I mean, this is largely about survival in many ways. This isn't a, like, well, it'd be nice if I got this money. This is, I need this money to basically hang on through this. You know, what are you hearing from small businesses in, in terms of how worried they are about survival? Well, they're ve they're very, very worried because... You know, from day to day and week to week, so much is changing. And there are pivots that are easier for certain types of businesses than for others. You know, if they're in manufacturing, if they have machinery that can maybe produce PPE, right, protective equipment, if they have the type of setup as a restaurant where they can close the restaurant but open a window that faces out to the street and serve coffee takeout, pastry takeout, food takeout. So it all depends on so many things, and sometimes you just don't have those things that fall into place where you can say, well, I can minimally run this business to some degree and still, you know, and, and ensure some level of bringing money back. The reason they're also very worried is because these federal relief programs, you know, for many businesses have been structured in a way that maybe doesn't help them in the moment. Rehiring right, right now for one business and keeping them on payroll for another month or two um, might just be money that they're spending simply to keep them around, but they can't actually do the business that they're typically engaged in doing. So the level of worry is very high, and it is a very painstaking process. Like the one message that's super clear is, you know, you're going to commit a lot of time and energy and resources to staying on top of this situation of where you're getting money from and how you're getting it. It's going to become part of your daily routine. You're going to check in with your banker. You're going to check in with your accountant. You're going to talk to your lawyer. You're going to resubmit an application. You're going to hear back that maybe you were rejected. You're going to start the process again. It, it's, you know, it's yeah. not it's not fun. Right. Right. Check your temperature and then check your relationship with your banker. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean that's what that's the new world reality. Well, it's a great series, and I know there's a lot more to come, and we'll be checking in with you weekly um, to see about the latest angle and help for the small business community. Um, Demetra, thank you so much. Great to hear your voice. Demetra Kessanides, she's editor with Bloomberg News, on the phone from New York City. And check out this coverage, the Small Business Survival Guide, and you can find it at Bloomberg.com. But it's something that you and I have talked a lot about because yeah. we know small business. We just heard about it when it comes to landlords, right? You totally. think, you know, you own a building, you think you're among, you know, the wealthiest, and yet it's a small business. And right. it's one with, you know, maybe you're not making a ton of money and some tight margins. Right. The margins, I think that that's really true. And, and there's just not a lot of cushion there. I'm driving in my car. 
I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. Back with us, one of our guys. We love talking to because he's really good at his job. His fun <laughs> does really well. Yes. Uh, so we like to get his advice on uh, what's going on, his observations, on what's happening in the market, especially on a day where the market a little more skeptical. Eric Clark is Portfolio Manager at Rational Dynamic Brands Fund, joining us on the phone from the West Coast, San Diego, to be exact. Eric, how are you? I'm great. How are you guys? We're doing okay. A little sunnier here uh, today uh, in New York. Not so sunny uh, in the markets. Uh, give us your take on, on where we are. I think we talked to you a month or so ago, maybe a little bit more. How's the world changed? How's the market changed in your estimation? Well, I, I think the market, I, I think this is a very consensus view. That doesn't mean that it's wrong. But I think the market is well ahead of where the economy is and this has been a big technical move driven by stimulus and policy accommodations and a really oversold market. And I think now we've just reached a little bit of equilibrium. You know, the rubber band got stretched way too far to the downside. It snapped back. And not surprisingly, we kind of failed at a technical level where we should have failed at least the first time up. So we saw a big sell program. I mean, everything's going down today when it started, you know, Staples Healthcare technology, it didn't really matter. So that's that's clearly more of a programmic, programmed sell-off rather right. than, you know, of this so, versus that. So, Eric, so my question to you is Goldman says stocks are due for an 18% drop after the rally driven by FOMO, fear of ma- missing out. We've talked about that a lot on right. our air. So we know we've had quite a, a bounce back. They're saying we need a drop from here. Do you agree that we need a drop or do you think we just kind of level off here for a while? Well, listen, need is, is difficult. I mean, the, the, the market kind of does what it does, and it, and it doesn't often do what it should do. And it's really hard to understand how the stimulus and the, the accommodation is a balancing act between the actual fundamentals. If you take away the, the, the stimulus part, the market should be a lot lower than where it is today. And, right. And so I, I suspect we're going to find some equilibrium after this big ramp. Uh, and, maybe you know, the best thing would, would be just to go sideways for a little while and work off some of these these conditions and just see how the economy opens, see what kind of virus numbers we get because of the opening, and then see what kind of consumer spending happens right. as people get back into the economy a little bit. Well, and one of the things that, that we've been talking about especially over the last couple of days or so, Eric, as we're more or less through this earnings season. And, and Dave Wilson pointed this out yesterday, our stocks guy. When we look at the retailers that are going to come out, they're going to give us actually a better view of where people were shopping or not shopping. And it does feel like you know those results and then the second quarter results, the sort of calendar second quarter results, are really going to give us a better sense than the last earnings did about who's winning and losing, who's really resilient here, right? 
Absolutely. You know, I, I think the July earnings in particular will probably the the most important, most insightful uh, earnings and commentary that we've had in many, many years, because now we get a chance to see which companies, which brands are really resonating with people, either online or in person once we open up a little bit, and, and which ones are somewhat naked, if you will, and, and, in, and in a lot bigger trouble. And my big issue is that a lot of these companies are raising more debt. So if your earnings are going down and your revenue is going down and your cash flows are going down, but you're raising more debt and you need to service that debt right. and you're a brand that isn't really resonating, that's a trouble. That's a troubling thing for certain companies. Did you say July earnings? I, I think the next earnings are going to be more important than the ones we've just seen because everybody expected the current yeah. earnings to be down. Okay. But now we get a chance to see three straight months. Right. Of you know partial closing when we've really been living with this, spending. yeah. Um, we have. You know, so what's interesting is we've had a lot of conversations about brands and that the brands that seem to do something help you know take a leadership position during this crisis that consumers are going to reward them on the other side. You look at brands, and I am curious about the brands that are stepping up and helping out consumers or helping out society and community versus those that are laying low uh, and going dark during this crisis. Are you looking at them as investment to to help and make an an investment decision? I I do. I mean, if if you are building more loyalty in a really difficult time, that loyalty is going to stick. I mean, Amazon uh, has just been a rock for, for people and it's been the go-to place. So I anticipate that's ju- just going to cement people's loyalty. Costco cement people's loyalty. You know, some of the brands that, that we kind of anchor to the Roku and the Netflix, um, you know, that, that, that we love and that we've been using more of, we're, we're probably going to stay even more loyal to, to those companies and those subscription models are going to be great. And, we're going to have low churn. So there's definitely going to be a this versus that yeah. in the mind of the consumer as we start to spend more. One of the names that I, I think you're interested in of late, uh, which speaks to my uh, amateur athletic uh, endeavors, is Garmin. Yeah, you know, I, I tried to look and say, well, if summer's approaching and we're going to get out into the world a little bit, there's going to be an appetite for athletics, athleisure, uh, working out, some local travel by car. And to me, Garmin, you know, it's got a great balance sheet, a little over $2 billion in cash. The stock's pulled back. And, and, you know, as you exercise more and you're outdoors, you're going to want the GPS and you're going to want the nice watch. Because in some ways you've been pent up in spending, so you're going to want to reward yourself yeah. a little bit. And, and so I'm kind of looking for those potential shorter-term trades over the next couple of months. And we've been very tactical because I think you have to be more tactical and active if you're going to capture gains in a highly volatile market, and that's what we're doing. So a name, so Garmin's a name that you've recently purchased. We have, we have, and I'll add to it on on this this dip too. What else? What What else have you added to? Well, uh, we have mostly been adding as as the market has come up to the resistance level. I've been trimming the the kind of offensive basket. The, you know, the Nikes and the Lulus and the Microsofts and the Apples and the Shopify's. And I've been adding to the defense basket, the Dollar General and the Costco mm-hmm. and the healthcare names and the Procter and Gamble. So, you know, top of the range, you sell the beta and you buy the defense. Bottom of the range, you do the, the reverse. 
All right. Love catching up with you, Eric Clark. Uh, you're the man. Portfolio Manager, Rational Dynamic Brands Fund. Uh, one of the top performers uh, over the past few years. So uh, check that out on the Bloomberg. He joined us on the phone from San Diego. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Bloomberg.